My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get away because everything is just fine. How to describe Rachel Rutt? On an obvious level, she's a fashion model. She's also a musician who is currently making waves with Heart People, the band that she quite recently formed with her partner, producer Ryan Grieve. Rachel was born in Hong Kong and raised in Japan and moved to Australia aged 15. She started modelling about three years later and went on to work in London and New York. She has featured in all the cool magazines, think ID, Dazed and Confused, Rush, Yen, Vogue, and she's worked for brands like Mulberry, Tome and Romance Was Born. But what else? Well... Rachel is obvious model material. She's five foot ten. She's gorgeous. She's ravishing to look at. But I'm interested in Rachel because she's beautiful in other ways. She's beautiful on the inside and she's a beautiful thinker. She's my mate, so I love her, but I find her really inspirational. She's fascinated by sustainable fashion and living sustainably. She's super cool and a great conversationalist. But the reason for Rachel appearing on this episode of The Wardrobe Crisis is her radical skill with a needle and thread. Rachel is a crafty weaver, knitter and sewer. She is an excellent darner and seriously I didn't even know that anyone still knew how to darn until I saw Rachel using the technique to fix up her torn denim. She loves to sew and she is a dedicated spreader of the word about mending. Rachel mends clothes for deeply considered reasons that go way beyond thrift, and she has this beautiful way of explaining those reasons. But if I had to pick one simple phrase to describe my friend Rachel, I would say creative spirit. You're going to love meeting Rachel Rutt and very likely be inspired to pick up a needle and thread. Rachel, I'm delighted that you are here today to talk to me about weaving, sewing, mending, making mending great again. Excellent. I'm really happy to be able to talk about that. What are you wearing for starters? Are you wearing anything that you have made? Today, no. I am wearing though some conscious clothing from a European-based label called Base Range and they mainly do underwear and things like that. I haven't heard of it. How great. Well, they're really brilliant. They keep the manufacturing really close to the places that they're based in. So it's in Portugal and France, but they're really... um, eco-friendly with dyes and recycled fibers and things like that and they also just make really comfortable clothes for where did you find out about it nowadays if I buy anything new I usually buy it online because 
you have way more options for ethically and sustainably minded clothing. Do you feel like that it's quite hard to find stuff you want that is either ethically or sustainably produced or branded that way? It's getting easier now. Some local websites in, in Australia now like well-made clothes. I was going to say, I love well-made clothes. It's very good, isn't it? They're making it easy. And at the moment, I've been um, wearing, mending a lot of denim for myself, for my partner and for some friends. I know that ripped denim is very much in fashion now. and Ripped across each knee pristinely <laughs> yeah, with some it, scissors. <laughs> it comes like that. You don't have to even wear it in anymore. And I find it atrocious, but obviously to each their own. I guess because I am constantly mending my own jeans and my partner and families, I feel like it's a waste of time to buy them ripped because you'll get there. If they're that good, you will get there. And the beauty of it is like most of the time people ask me, where did I buy those jeans? Where did I buy those wonderfully mended, ripped up jeans? And I've artfully <laughs> aged. Yeah. <laughs> it must have cost you hundreds of dollars and absolutely not. It's just in time and love, but it has been the most useful skill. How do you actually do it? There's lots of different ways of doing it. So um, as a weaver, there is a way that you can actually create a woven patch onto the hole of your jeans. Like a warp and a weft. Yeah, and And so you just sew them in with a needle and you kind of use the warp and the weft mentality and weave a patch, which is super useful. But again, it just depends on the type of fabric that you're mending and also how much patience you have on the day. Because sometimes I will just get a patch from my fabric scraps bag or some other jeans that are way gone cut it off, put it on and just use the machine. And sometimes that's all you can do at the time, but it's good enough because you're fixing something and reusing it again. When I talked to you about coming on this podcast, Rachel, I said that I wanted to call it Making Mending Great Again. (laughs) I'm really happy with that. (laughs) But I've always known you as this excellent mender in part because you share on Instagram some of your techniques and some of the projects that you've worked on. But what is it about mending that you like? Does it give you satisfaction? Oh, it's incredibly pleasing. A, because especially when you're a conscious shopper, you're buying things that you absolutely love and you hope that they will just be with you forever. And unfortunately, most of the time they can't because if you love them that much, you're going to wear them out. And so for the most part, actually being a mender is the most thoughtful part of it is actually thinking of ways that the item won't break forethought. It's really important for sustainable thinking and living, but also if you really love the thing, you'd rather it not have a patch. But if it gets to that point, there's a satisfaction in knowing that you're going to keep something that you absolutely love. The fact that it's going to evolve into something that is truly, truly yours, because it's got a little bit of character. character, exactly. But also, it's just the idea that you're becoming that much closer to something, you're caring that much more. And not only do you have that as a personal feeling and you take that with you, but when other people see it, you're transferring that relationship onto their impression of the item or clothing or amending in itself. And it's an unspoken language and it's wonderful in, in that regard. So it's the gift that keeps on giving in many, many ways. How beautiful. Oh, I'm, I think that it's something I want more people to know about. And I think a lot of people haven't had the opportunity because sewing isn't as much of a household day-to-day thing anymore as much as it used to be. And I was lucky enough as a girl to be surrounded by women and some men who were interested and also more importantly interested in sharing, which is a huge part of mending in itself. And the fact that the most brilliant part about mending is that It is an everyday skill and it is something you can do on the train, on the couch, anywhere. It's just about you making it practical in your own life. It's quite a humble skill, isn't it? I think one of the reasons why potentially we've lost that connection with how we used to fix and mend Mm. things is this idea that 
if you have the best of the best, you have the newest and the shiniest. Mm. And so people think, oh, well, it's a bit make-do to yeah. mend something. It's a bit humble. Perhaps it's not as glamorous as buying a shiny new thing. That's true. And it's also an excuse to throw it away because sometimes, unfortunately, we make bad choices when we go shopping. And the age that we live in now is that it's okay to make a bad choice because you can go and buy a new one for $20. And it's Mending's totally like fine. a commitment. It's a commitment. It makes you think about your choices. So in a lot of ways, it, it's definitely sustainable thinking on the sense that it prolongs your use of the item but it also you need to think about I mean I I don't want to preach you need to think sorry I feel bad saying that but in order to think as a mender you actually have to think before something breaks you got to think about the quality you got to think about the origin and you've also got to think about how long you really want to keep something and if it's really going to suit you for five to ten years as opposed to six months you know Mm. there's kind of been a fairly strong resurgence I think in mending culture when it comes to mechanical things so guys in particular and girls but you know I think lots of blokes like fixing machines Mm. fixing bikes you know we have repair cafes where you can bring household things that have been kaput and someone will teach you how to fix them up but I feel like we're a bit more slow on the uptake when it comes to clothing and textiles what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think um, back in the day, obviously, it was much more common. But where we stand now, I guess it's also a matter of not really understanding where clothes come from. Or it's the same with food, not knowing where where your food comes from, not realizing it comes from a farm, not a supermarket. It's the same kind of thing, not really thinking that if something's made in Bangladesh, it might have been made by a child or by someone who's in terrible working conditions. Just not actually thinking that way and not being educated in that way. Because we're out of the habit, maybe. Yeah, we're out of the habit and, and we don't have time. This is another... We think we don't have time. We think we don't have time. It really doesn't take very long. It's actually would be much faster to mend our things than go and buy them or even obviously have someone make a new one. But it's all just a mentality shift. It's clearly possible to have a lively interest in style and fashion and clothes, but also in the sustainability side of this conversation. I know this because I've seen you perform on stage in a skin-tight silver (laughs) space-age jumpsuit. (laughs) (laughs) How do you balance those two things? Well... Another thing I guess it kind of sprouted from mending is like the idea of altering. So sometimes I just go to thrift shops and look for magical fabric, even if it's in a terrible design. And a lot of things at op shops are are weird shapes or weird sizes. And, you know, there's a lot of room for change. And so sometimes I just go and look for that and I'll take it home and, you know, it'll cost $5 or $10. It's really nothing. And it's just a bit of my time and experimentation that could make something wonderful. It's not technically perfect, but it's a lot of fun. Or in the case of silver sparkling dance suits, that was a collaboration with a friend of mine. His name's Paulie and he runs a project called Hi Mum I'm Dead which is entirely um, made from reused fabric and things like that and he's an artist and he did a lot of wearables and it's called what? Hi Mum I'm Dead (laughs) and so with the silver suit we collaborated on that and he actually um, glued all these wonderful diamantes onto it and when working for you know show pieces the great thing is knowing that they're incredible and they will be worn again because they're you can't wear them day to day because you know lycra it's not that wearable necessarily but for an hour's performance it's completely wonderful and brings the magic and you can use it over and over and and that's a nice way to express the more flamboyant edge of myself but then you know back to regular life it is all about Again, you know, whether you're buying something new and really thinking about it, making choices, being thoughtful, something I've started doing personally is trying to buy out of season. If I need a new winter coat, I want to buy it in summer because I don't want to impulse buy it. And I also, you know, use the sale to your advantage, use the northern southern hemisphere to your advantage, but also just so that I 
I have the time to think about it before I actually Ooh. need it. And those are just things that I do for myself Gosh. to try and help myself. That is like quite radical, the whole idea of that is really slowing down. I mean, yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. I guess not just for the sale, obviously, that's no, one aspect, but thinking, okay, I'm not going to buy in a whim because I'm really going to plan this. Yeah, and it, because I've bought so many things that I thought I loved, I thought they would be fantastic. And unfortunately, they either didn't suit my long-term needs physically or also just mentally, what I, how I needed to express myself. So, And it has made me curb a little bit of my flamboyance, really, because I, you know, as much as we are emotional dressers, I think most women are, you have to be accountable, especially when you, once you get on this train of thought. No one else cares, but you're accountable to yourself. And you are the most important person. You need to remember for yourself because later on you spent that money. You're the one throwing it away and you know. And whether no one else knows or cares, it doesn't matter. You do. So just trying to set some standards for myself. And it's been hard, but it's also forced me to, to really think about what it, what it is that I want and not impulse buy, which is everyone wants to. I, I love the idea of impulse buying. There's something in it that makes me feel brilliant. But it's fuck. It's terrible. It's, it's not who I want to be. And so I have to force myself out of it. Listening to you talk, Rachel, I'm thinking that you do have like a steely discipline. Like you're basically saying to yourself, you're holding yourself to certain standards when it comes to shopping, which I mean, who does that? It's actually quite a rigorous way of behaving. Like, okay, I want to be more sustainable. I want to live in a certain way, but you're holding yourself up to quite high standards that you've set yourself. It's been gradual for sure. I think working in fashion for a long time and you start seeing where things are made and like as a model doing a lot of lookbooks, you're touching all these samples and samples are really like, they really show you the origin of something because no matter if the client tells you, oh, that'll be different when it gets produced, the sample tells the whole story. And as a model, you're, you're exposed to that and you're going, okay, this is made in Indonesia, this is Indian, this is Italian. And you start educating yourself literally through feeling. And then I'm not saying everyone goes through this, but I certainly did, where you start wondering about why something is breaking faster or why it isn't and why certain things are more comfortable than others or why you like them for longer, et cetera, et cetera. And there are many ways to even research this or not research it and keep finding out more. There's a perception that modelling is all about just standing like a block of wood in front of the camera and then going home with the money. Yeah. It's it obvious that well, it could be. But you used it as an opportunity to think through part of the process that you were involved in, but also the other part that you weren't involved in. So yeah. you're looking at the clothes and you're wondering about the stories. How did you approach modelling and what, what did you take from it? Did you find it inspiring? Did you try and decode the clothing aspect of it because you were bored? Like, where does mm. that come from? That's true. It's probably a combination of all of those things. I guess initially I just did it because it was an opportunity to a travel, try something new. And because so many people told me I should. And when you're getting that kind of input as a teenager, you can do one of two things, yes or no. You know, you just choose one and go for it. And so I thought I would. I didn't have a lot of opportunities coming my way. So why wouldn't you? Let me just dial you back there. Sorry. So you were saying lots of people kept telling you what to model. Yeah, just not not fashion people or anything. Just, you know, I was tall and my mum was quite receptive to that idea. So she kind of, you know, encouraged it as well. But and I'm, I'm assuming this is a similar story for many girls. And in the case of my life, I just went for it. And it was a slow start like anybody. Pretty average story to some degree. I guess being in Australia, my initial setback would have been my race. Being Eurasian, it wasn't, it's getting better now, but it certainly wasn't common for people to book Asian or, or mixed race people God. at all. How weird to hear you say that. I mean, it just seems so strange and counterproductive. It really does, considering yeah. the population here and also just 
globalization in general. But um, but that was your experience. That in was the beginning. my early experience. Yeah, and you know I'm glad that for the honesty of my agency as well, because it allowed for me to just go, okay, that's this how it is. But over the course of my career as a model, which has been like eight or nine years now, it's certainly changed. So you moved yeah. to Australia from Japan when you were 15, right? That's right. So I grew up in a commune basically in Japan. And so coming here was the first kind of experience and not living in a certain kind of way. Uh, it was also the first English speaking country I'd lived in, although I had spoken English my whole life. So, you know, but you were homeschooled, right? I was homeschooled. So I'd never been to school at all. And so that was probably like the biggest change that everyone speaking English and yeah, needing to go into an institutionalized form of education. Did you hate it or did you find it fascinating? You know what? I look back on it and I know that when you are homeschooled, you are basically learning how to inform yourself. And that is a really good skill to have. And when I got to high school, public high school here, I realized that I was a skill that everyone had and that I was at an advantage. So in a lot of ways, coming into it at the last few years of high school, it was quite beneficial for me because I feel like I got the most out of it without actually having to put in that much effort. Because you haven't been raised in the system of thinking like that, you are outside the box already. So you can look at it and dissect it and figure out the best way of getting around. Did people think you were a weird kid, though, because you've got a shaved head? Oh, you've yeah, I went to a girl's descended school on there. and I didn't make any friends for the first year. Uh, but I was also incredibly shy, so I also probably to do with that. But high school wasn't a bad experience for me at all once I got used to it. So, And I, I really think that children are resilient and to know that, I mean, I was a teenager, so I guess I wasn't a child, but... You have everything inside of you if you want to succeed or if you want to make something. And I wish that more kids knew this now. You can see your own possibility and just make it happen because regardless of what you get beset with in life, you really have the power to manipulate it just with your mind. When did you work that out though? Did you work that out as an adult or did you kind of have a sense of knowing that you could make it work when you were younger? Well, I think doing that in high school would have been that probably the first practical realization of that, whether I was fully aware that I was doing it or not. I know that I did it, so I, maybe I realised it then to some degree. So you were scouted, but then you didn't take them up on that opportunity. When were you next approached about being a model? I didn't get approached after that. It was two years later. I just went into an agency. Oh, you took yourself? Yeah, because of all the um, you know, people just telling me. So I just went in and because I was about to finish school, and I just thought, why not? Let's just do this and see. Push yourself. You know, life is what you make of it, of course. So just went in and did that. And So obviously people were saying to you, you could do this. And you thought, yeah, I could. But how much did you know about the fashion industry and about modelling? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I wasn't hearing all this info from anyone who was in the fashion industry, so really I knew nothing and no one knew anything. But it was just based on my height and what whatnot. So were you still shy? Oh, incredibly. But I have to say doing the work through modeling, it definitely helped me open up a lot more. Um, I think about it now and, you know, some people start really young. Some people start when they're 14 or, you know, whatever I think that would ridiculous be so age. It would be terribly hard. I was like 18, about to turn 19. And it was still incredibly confronting. But at the same time, it the wonderful thing about it is that it exposes you on a professional level to people of various ages and talents, creativity levels. Whether you're aware of it or not, it is actually helping you develop strong adult relationships if you want it to, because you're having, you're not just dealing with your peer group. 
anymore even when you're in your teens or and it's forcing you to kind of step it up and obviously everyone deals with this differently but I really enjoyed the idea of making professional relationships and friendships with various types of people that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to meet and actually some of those people are extraordinary aren't they I mean we talked about this before that when you moved to London when you were what about 19 yeah you then encountered some of the people that perhaps then were more starting out but now are like massive names yeah and you don't know it at the time and at the time you're just meeting someone that you're going to collaborate with for that day and you have no idea but then turns out that this person is going to change the world and you had the privilege of meeting and working with them in this tiny little window of time and it's not so much that you you walk away feeling like bettered or anything like that it's more just realizing how magical those little incidences are and how little you know about the everyday moment who were some of those people that you encountered in london I got to meet Edward Enninful, who I, I really admired even at the time, but I didn't know anything about this stuff. And you look at him now and you just go, wow, I can't believe that at one point in my life I saw you like once a month. Or people like Robbie Spencer or even my old housemate Markin, who ended up being um, Nick Knight's first assistant for a, a while. And we're still close and just watching him develop his career through supporting another artist as well. And that's the thing I love about fashion is watching artistic careers develop We often hear about the negative impacts of the fashion industry on people and planet, but also some of the negative impacts of the modelling industry on people's little psyches that are just growing forward. You're telling a different story about some of the cool stuff, like the creativity, the fact that you're collaborating with all these people kind of, it's a bit tribal, isn't it? Like people in similar mindsets to the one that you're in when you're 19 and you're newly in London. Yeah. And it's interesting how you're that young and you're you're getting exposed to ideas that you would never encounter in your living room at home. And you're so open to them because everyone's making them normal. Because you're with all these people who, who aren't scared because you're all together and, and you're supporting each other. And so these ideas are brilliant or they're terrible, but it's all okay. And it allows you to start thinking outside of the box. You're not thinking, I have to go to work and do nine to five. You're thinking, well, maybe I can create a fantasy for a living or or not. And you try things and it encourages you to look at the world in a different way, much like, I suppose, a painter looks at the world in a different way or a poet, you know. We were talking before about creativity and what that means in how we define it. And um, that idea that some people seem to have been conditioned to say, oh, of course, I'm not creative. But we were saying before we started to record this, actually, everyone's creative, aren't they? Exactly. It's It's just just how you phrase it or how daring you want to be with it. Yeah. And also how creativity is literally just finding a solution that isn't obvious, doing something that isn't obvious, trying something out, pushing yourself, essentially. And I really, really think that it's something everyone has inside of them that needs to come out. And it comes out in various ways. It doesn't matter what you do. If you are lucky enough to have found what you love and you are doing it every day in your career or otherwise, if you're lucky enough to have found that, you have found your version. And the thing is that I really don't think that everyone just has one version either. And like you were saying before, you can be really bad at something and just enjoy it. And that's a form of creativity because you're allowing yourself just to breathe and just to be. If you disassociate the idea of creativity with success or a certain kind of benchmarking of success. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's just, yeah, exactly. What does creativity mean to you? Yeah, well, I think it's just allowing this part of yourself that wouldn't exist otherwise, just allowing it to be free, accepting it, accepting the way that it comes out. Maybe it doesn't even come out in a physical manifestation that you can share with others. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's cooking one meal for yourself. Maybe it's nothing tangible. But whatever it is, it's just being comfortable with that. It could be another form of self-awareness. It's just allowing yourself to be... 
obviously you're very driven by the pursuit of creativity and we're going to talk a little bit later about your music project but what else what drives you what makes you happy I like figuring out how things get made and maybe that's why I've been so driven sustainably and ethically in that kind of train of thought. But when I'm making things with textiles, whether it's weaving or knitting or embroidery, sewing, whatever, mending, it's all just about understanding a little bit more what is making up our world. What are we relying on and why is it so and appreciating it from that point. Because something that I have been guilty of in the past is going too fast with everything, like whether it's so simple as something as cooking or just rushing to get places or it, nothing and everything, rushing, 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 and not really knowing why and giving myself a sense of anxiety. And one day, um, it was actually my partner who called me out on it and he was like, why is this so? Why are, It seems against who you are that you would be like this. And so I started trying to understand myself a little bit more and... When I ran out of understanding, I decided to figure out ways to change it. And one of the best ways to do it was to start thinking small, thinking about the pieces in the larger whole, because I was trying to get to the larger part faster without actually enjoying the small pieces. So I started just assessing and looking at things from a smaller way, taking my time, forcing myself to take time. You know, um, people talk about mindfulness all the time. And I saw a therapist last year, which was really helpful for me. And she told me what mindfulness really was, because I wasn't sure what it was. I feel like it's a word that gets thrown around. I don't know if I could define all, it either. All the time. But she said, literally, here's an exercise that describes it. When you feel everything's just rising up above and your cup's overflowing and you're just, you're not handling it, you've got to stop and reconnect with your senses. Think about five things that you can hear five things that you can touch, five things that you can see, five things you can smell, and then go down to four things, three things, two things, one. And then by then you've reconnected with your environment sensually and you've stopped thinking about whatever it is that is stressing you out because you're just connecting with exactly where you are physically. You're connecting with the world around you and you're focusing on these things that you're otherwise obliterating through your anxiety and through your stressful mentality. And that was the best description of mindfulness I've ever received. And when she explained that to me, I started looking at things from the smaller perspective. Are you a bit of a stressed person? I definitely went through a stage, but concluded recently. <laughs> but it was due to me not really addressing certain things in my own life. And once I stopped taking myself for granted and started trying to understand why it was that I was doing things and also whether or not I needed to operate on that level, once I started really being honest with myself on that level, it started to go away. Listening to you talk, I was thinking so many things quite anxiously because I am <laughs> quite anxious. <laughs> These are all the things I thought, Rachel. I thought fashion people tend to be quite anxious. Is the flip side of creativity anxiety? I thought, God, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances and people in my circle who admit to feeling stressed and anxious. Then I thought, perhaps that's actually the human condition in 2017. And then I thought, <laughs> knitting. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> now... I don't know. Please discuss before we get on to knitting. What do you think about all those stressful things that I just raised? Well, I, yeah, I think fast fashion is a like an easy way to start. I guess you and I both know so many people in the fashion or creative scenes and there's this 
feeling that we need to be pumping out so much product all the time, whether it's um, a magazine spread or like a collection or all these things. And even to the point of social media, just how much of yourself can you share today? What did you do today that was glamorous? What did you do today that you can sell to your audience? Even to that point. And I think all the anxieties is coming from this drive that we feel, you know, and it's another form of fantasy. It's not real, but I feel like mm. we're forgetting what's real and what's not real. And and also the um, kind of relentless gathering of speed of modern life. I mean, it is inescapable when we're talking about reconnecting with mending and some of those hand-worked processes mm. that previous generations laboured over. We don't live in that society anymore, do we? We've always got to be in a hurry. And <laughs> knitting can be a kind of de-stressor and a bit of a... What do you think? I'm going to read this because I love it. So you collaborated with this wonderful organisation called Wool and the Gang. And on their website, they talked about uh, the power of knitting and the benefits of knitting on their website. And they talk about it as a de-stressor, an anxiety calmer, a memory improver, even a dementia conqueror, mm. as well as social. I personally got into knitting, um, well, I started pursuing it more th when I was modelling a lot more because of all the waiting time on shoots and backstage at shows, et cetera, et cetera. But initially I got into it, um, my mum's friend taught me how to do it and she was raised in Hong Kong and basically middle class or lower income earner families at the time, they would, the mother would knit them a jumper and when they outgrew it, they'd unravel it and make a bigger one. And I mean, that's radical in itself. It's wonderful, but we think it's radical now. But back in the day, that was just normal. A sweater, you know, the wool, it was just functional. It's how we keep warm. But and it's a resource, so you're not going to throw it away. Exactly. I've been to places like Iceland where you've seen these jumpers that have lived through two or three generations and they look immaculate still because of the way that they've been worked and, and it's just wonderful and fascinating in their family heirlooms that are completely functional. But this friend taught you to knit. Mm -hmm. How old were you? Um, I was 15. It was a very remarkable year for me. Um, it was just after I came to Australia. and um, Being a skinhead. Yeah. <laughs> with knitting needles. Skinhead knitter. Unraveling your jumpers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dealing with your anxiety. Dealing dealing with anxiety it definitely is uh, it is a meditation for sure even if you are terrible at it I've encouraged a lot of people because they're so interested in it but they're, they want to make a jumper right away or they want to make whatever it is and the the beautiful thing is a lot of people go oh I'm terrible with patterns or and I, I have never read a pattern once you understand the basic structure I encourage you to literally make two squares, sew them together, make a top out of that, add some more squares, add some rectangles. It doesn't matter. If you can knit a scarf, you can knit whatever the hell you want because <laughs> it's all about manipulating geometry. And because it's fabric, it can, you know, fold. So just but a t-shirt is four squares. It but that comes that down to that idea of what is creativity and how do we measure success? Because if you can just enjoy the process of knitting, maybe it doesn't actually matter whether you can exactly. make a fantabulous jump. Exactly. And I think initially I do feel like with students that I've had, just friends, and I don't mean like long-term students, just I know, I was like, like, do you teach to. with a blackboard? Can you teach me? <laughs> and my glasses and my beret. Um, <laughs> um, I've taught a few people how to knit and something I really stress is not worrying about the end game because it isn't about that because half the time... A lot of people, when they start knitting, they don't finish things. So start simple. I also tell people to start with bigger needles and bigger yarn so it's more so you can see your progress better because you need to be encouraging yourself at the beginning. You really shouldn't be setting a lot of challenges because the fact that you're getting into it in the first place is marvelous and you should just celebrate <laughs> that. And the longer you go, the more you can challenge yourself. But when you're just learning the basics, again, be prepared for failure and enjoy the failure because 
failure is actually, especially with knitting, because there are so many different types of Like a drop ways. stitch, doesn't matter? It doesn't matter because everything, the beauty about knitting is Unravel everything it. is fixing. You can fix everything and mistakes are beautiful. Like they really, really are. In fact, the more mistakes sometimes, the more beautiful an item. Rewind because I mentioned wool and the gang. Oh, yeah. So this is like a collective of awesome knitting people. Yeah, well, they kind of started, yeah, based on the idea that you could buy a fabulous jumper from um, them from them that was either handmade by someone in the community or you could just make it yourself. And it brings the cost right down. You're still getting quality items. You're getting a whole pattern. You can still so what, pick your colors and They everything. send you the wool. Yeah, they send you the wool and the, and the needles and the pattern. And they have items between beginners and advanced. And it sort of encourages people to start making their own, but also it, how simple it is and to broaden that kind of community or to create a community that you can join. But these are not knitting nanas. These are kind of cool girls. Like two of them yeah. went to St. Martin's. One of them is a model or was yeah, a model. Who, all... who were they? Um, well, I only know, really know Jade. Um, and I met her when I lived in London because of my old housemate, Mark. And so it's, again, it's one of those things. You don't know who you're meeting when you're meeting them half the time. So Jade Harwood. Jade Harwood. She is one of the, the St. Martin's graduates who studied textiles with her co-founder, who is Aurelie Popper. Yeah. Lovely name. Aurelie they're, Popper. They're lovely ladies. And they, um, And so what did you do with them? I guess they were aware of my knitting because we we're uh, through a friendship basis, but. Were you always like the girl at parties knitting? <laughs> Does that even happen? <laughs> I used to carry my knitting around a lot more before I had an, uh, returned. Uh, I got an injury from bad practice. So that's from, another thing. You got, sorry, stop. Uh, too many couch. You got couch a sessions. knitting injury. Yeah. It's so repetitive that um, my bad posture created a problem for me, which is now healed, thankfully. But it's made me have to reassess my whole practice with knitting. Get out. Dangerous. Yeah. It is dangerous. dangerous. You've got to be, you've got to be conscious. Even when you're relaxing, you've got to be conscious. But it's, it's like yoga. You've it just encourages more awareness of your body these are quite squeaky chairs we're sitting on they add to the atmosphere the um on the wool and the gang website they also refer to themselves as which i loved a global network of gangsters yeah (laughs) i think i think that what they have done has been groundbreaking and it's really encouraged a lot of young people to a um take up a craft but also just look at their choices and so what we did we just did a capsule collection kind of based on the australian summer here which was really cool so some friends of mine um they um they're called joy collection they did a video for me and um, we went out into the bush and you know we got photos of me wearing the knitwear with kangaroos and things like that it wasn't so much aussie inspired in, in technical design at all it was more just that i incorporated a lot of cottons and things like that for summer as opposed to using wool mm-hmm. and i was known at one point from knitting a lot of swimwear rachel we need to move swiftly on to weaving mm. when you lived in the blue mountains or perhaps before when yeah. was it that you became involved with the what is it even called? The Guild of uh, Hand Weavers and Spinners of New South Wales. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it was an extension from knitting. So at one point I looked into machine knitting, which long story short, I've now actually gotten into. But while I was researching that, I ended up coming across the Guild's website and signing up for to see when their classes were on. Not really knowing what it was about, not really thinking about weaving in that way. And about six months later, I got an email saying that there was X amount of classes. Why did it take them six months? Slow fashion. They're just, they're very <laughs> slow fashion. They're a, a bit old world in that way, you know. Um, <laughs> this is like the opposite of Wool and the Gang, right? Because no. everyone is a little bit Everyone's older. Everyone's older. It's skipped a generation. So I was like, the, I would definitely say I was the youngest. So what do you make 
I make hangings at the moment and I'm working on more like 3D and sculpture, but it's still work in progress. But as I was um, in our earlier discussion, it's interesting how coming into knitting from a freeform kind of perspective of coming from doing it at home, just creating and improvising. Um, I had no fear and like I worked on a project once that turned into a video called Feel Real Love and it was basically based on, this is with knitwear, all these costumes that created a sense of anonymity for the wearer and I ended up getting a bunch of my friends who are regularly quite shy and wouldn't normally feature in a video or a photo shoot and I asked them, I interviewed them and they could be whoever they wanted so they could lie or be truthful and it didn't matter because there was no identity and we created a little video from that. And that, to me, still to this day, is my ultimate sense of freedom and what I've achieved with textiles. But when it came to weaving, because I guess I came from such a structured background of studying it with these artisans and women who had been practicing their whole lives and who wouldn't consider themselves artists, they would consider themselves craftspeople. I had this technically based fear on everything that I've created, which is actually only recently something that I've started to be able to address and understand. But because I'd come at it from such a structure, I hadn't been able to break it down for myself and just relax and make something coming straight from my heart. So it's been interesting having these similar yet totally contrasting practices in the same sphere. And it's interesting how your mind works in that level. You said from your heart, Mm. which is a perfect segue to ask you about (laughs) heart people music. Mm. (laughs) By the way, on the way here, I passed a, this is true, I'm not making up, I passed a girl in one of your bomber jackets. Excellent, thank you. Just in the street, (laughs) just in Waterloo. Well, it's actually another thing with the merch with our band is that everything that I, well, I've only really succeeded in making the jacket so far, but we're moving on into other merchandise and knowing all this stuff and having this sort of background in fashion is, is allowing me to make much more educated choices. I mean, unfortunately, it means that we won't make a profit as quickly as other bands. But in the long run, I think it will just be the best. And I'm already feeling the satisfaction just from seeing the bombers out there and knowing that they're well made. How and, did you make them? Well, they're military surplus bombers and I'm getting them embroidered in Sydney. Fantastic. By a workwear company. So it's been really great. And I just do all the labels myself at home. So it's been very grassroots and, you know, we only just turned a minimal profit the other day, but it doesn't really matter because it's been doing it in the right way. And the longer we do it, the more that it's based in this foundation, the better the results are going to be. And so that is slow. And those jackets in a way, like I embroidered the first two myself by hand. It took me four days to do two jackets. And that was three years ago. And yeah, the process, if you think about it from that, three years to creating this merchandise, yeah, it's taken a long time, but I'm so happy with the results. And so it speaks enough for me to know that. But yes, Heart People is my band. You're mesmerizing. I've seen you. Tell me a little bit about the thinking behind it. Actually, tell me about Homecoming because that is the title track of your latest EP, perhaps your first EP. Our first EP. Indeed. (laughs) I love the thinking behind it. You wrote a beautiful post on Instagram where you explained what that meant to you. Through our music, we travel to new or familiar places. Our bodies respond through dance. Dance is a pure point of expression. I thought that was very beautiful. Thank you. Well, it's been interesting, um, the theme behind Homecoming as a whole, because when we worked on it as a song and then when it became the title of our EP, it was basically, um, we weren't actually thinking of making a song. We were actually thinking of working on our next visual piece because we'd just come out with a, our first single with a really spectacular video that our friends had done for us. And um, we were kind of thinking... In the jumpsuit. Um, no, it was it was before that. It was ah. actually out in the desert. You should look it up. You'll love it. It's out in um, the Painted Desert in South Australia. 
So we, because of my background not being in music, our project is really strongly rooted in visuals as well because of my interests. And um, we started working on Homecoming more as an idea for another video rather than a song. And so the song itself is a little bit unusual. And then eventually when we worked on the EP and then we ended up using it as the title, we had also been working on our live aspects. And a big part of especially our early live sets was um, collaboration with dancers. So our friend Matthew Godey, who's a choreographer, he'd come on board for some of our music videos and basically it was something that we've always loved, the idea of having, I mean, it's a lot of hip-hop or big stars, they have dancers and that's all really well and good, but I guess we were really lucky enough in our creative community to have people who are on board and willing to just get involved because they love the music and they wanted to create something to accompany that. And so it was in that early live process, which isn't actually happening that much anymore, but we wanted to come back in. It was just a part of our sort of vision, yeah. especially because how Ryan and I met was that he was DJing and I was dancing and we were both just having such a great time and we ended up becoming friends through that and meeting up and Ryan asking me if I would do some vocals over some work that he was doing with his other band at the time. So it was all very out of the ordinary for me personally. For Ryan, not so much because he has worked with non-vocalists before to do spoken word or whatever over his stuff. So it was an unlikely meeting for me and him and we just sort of... How did you know you could sing? I, I didn't, frankly. And if you hear our early stuff, like you can tell very much, even this first song that came out. And it wasn't so much about me singing as much as us talking to each other and going, hey, we, we think the same, you know, we want the same things, we want to communicate the same message. And Ryan was going, this is my medium. Are you willing to try my medium? That night that I met Ryan was so special for me on a personal level because I'd never danced that way before. I'd never heard music that way. Growing up in a commune, I didn't hear a lot of worldly music ever until I came to Australia. So music in general for me is still very much like I'll hear a song for the first time that you've heard your whole life. And that's just how I am. And that's it's really fun and lovely most of the time. But it means that I'm quite ignorant and naive as well. And maybe that was a really good thing because when it came to tackling a medium that I really is, is actually quite a scary medium, singing or music in general. When we wanted to put out Homecoming, we it was really important for us that we kind of touch on that idea of like, basically letting yourself be free again another relation to what we were saying about creativity before allowing yourself to be to just listen to listen to this listen to your heart not let what your outside surroundings are doing or saying to dictate how you really feel or how you deserve to feel or how you deserve to express yourself you go out a lot at nightclubs or whatever or the bar and people don't really want to dance because it's not because they don't want to i i truly believe it's because they're afraid of what other people are going to think about them and it's so childish and no one wants to admit it but it's true and what we really want to encourage through our work as humans, is just that freedom and touching in with yourself. No one else can communicate the way that you're going to communicate. No one can move their body like you can because it's your spirit and it's a translation of the whole. It's the bigger Mm. picture and you're just joining that and allowing it to be free-flowing and you're letting something out. That's a huge part of what we want to do with our music and essentially the title of our project Heart People came from, again, wanting to not live from our heads live through the heart, you know, and encourage that feeling. And so when we see people walking around with our jackets, half the time, as much as I'd love to say, I think it's just because everyone loves the band, I really think it's because people love the philosophy that the words heart people stand for on their own, beyond the music. And that's the most important part of the project Mm. for us. Even though the medium is what it is, it's the idea that needs to stand on its own, and I think it does. That's the end. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel Rudd. (laughs) 
melting hot My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm curious too. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you